verses 17 through 21. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zephoth. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephrod shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I'd like to issue a public apology to Melanie for asking her to pronounce half the names in Israel. She asked me just before, she goes, why couldn't they have been named like Smithfield and Benson and that sort of thing? Just a quick update as to where we are as a family. Many of you have been praying for us. We uh, are very thankful to the care that you've given to us, um, both in physical ways and and through your prayers. We uh, Thanks for your patience. It's been a difficult time, no doubt. One that God has not removed yet, but he has sustained us in it. And that's the critical issue here is that two things, and this is why we need to know God, because two things, as I was sharing with some folks we were praying with last week, the incarnation and the crucifixion have been crucial to us. The incarnation means that uh, God has entered our pain in Christ, that he has not stood aloof, he's not stood distant, He's entered our world, and he has embraced and suffered in every way like us. So we feel that he is close. The crucifixion means that he hasn't just entered to experience it, but he's entered it to transform it and to make it better. He said, I've come to make uh, all things new. And so we feel those two are like towers that we're clinging to and holding us fast. And what we see as faith in this time is really a watching and a waiting, a preserving and a looking. And I've been encouraged in Psalm 123. This is where Scripture is so essential to uphold us. He says, To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of the Master, as the eyes of the maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. And so we have been greatly encouraged as a church. We have sought to minister to you, and you are doing a wonderful job ministering back to us. So thank you for your prayers, and thank you for your patience, too. I think there'll be days ahead, but we trust that the Lord by his grace, will sustain us and, and walk us through. Let me try to do a major chapter change here to the text. Uh, we'll be going in and out of emotions probably in the sermon, but um, I, I know most of you probably know the Bible verse that says pride goes before the fall. And, and it makes sense to us. And uh, 
Pride can be very destructive. It, It can also be very humorous, particularly when it's kind of in an embarrassing sort of way. I remember when I was waiting tables in college, and uh, I had just finished lunch, and I was going on my shift, and uh, uh, I went to the first table, and it was, you know, it was a college town, obviously, so a bunch of young ladies were there, and I walk up to them, and they're smiling at me, and kind of even giggling a little bit, and I thought, well, maybe I've got something moving here. <laughs> and... Uh, and then I went to the next table, and ladies a little bit older, and they smiled at me. They kind of much more discreet, kind of put their head down, and and I'll go to the next table, and they're kind of smiling. I'm thinking, wow, man, I'm really got it working. And uh, and then about ten minutes later, I walk by these uh, refrigerators that were reflective, and I see this piece of tomato, and and cheese was in my mustache. And everybody was looking and laughing at me, and I thought I had it all working. Well, you know, sometimes pride is that way. We can, you can laugh at yourself, and you can kind of think, you know, it's a guy, the snooty guy with his nose up in the air, trips on the curb, you know, it's all kind of humorous that way. But pride isn't always so humorous. It can be very, very destructive. I shared this with you back a few years ago, but it, it kind of is so appropriate for the text that I want to share it again. And, and this is that many of you were alive when the Space Shuttle Challenger uh, the tragedy in 1986, 75 seconds off a liftoff, uh, the uh, engines exploded and all lives were lost. And in discovering what caused this great tragedy to occur, they found that these O-rings, these circular rings between engine or, or rocket boosters um, could not handle adverse conditions, gave way, and that's what caused the explosion. But, but it was interesting what the New York Times reported was the reason for the disaster. It said pride. Pride because the upper management had been warned over the nature of these O-rings and their, uh, their being subject to disaster. And it was pride, they said, that brought down that, that space shuttle. And, you know, we're going to see pride in a unique way in this book of Obadiah. Obadiah being one of the minor prophets, minor prophet not being minor in importance, but minor in size, as we've talked about. I I hope you've been challenged by these minor prophets. I sure have. I thought they used to be just a bunch of old men who were really angry and ticked off and just yelled at everybody. And, And yet we found in these prophets a clear word regarding the holiness of God and why he brings justice to sin. And yet we've seen the softness of God who has mercy for those who return and repent. So Obadiah is the one I'd like to introduce to you. Perhaps you didn't know Obadiah was in the Bible before this morning, but it is. It's actually, you know that expression, great things come in small packages. This would be one of those things. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, 21 verses. If you were to sit down and read it today, it will take you about three and a half minutes if you read at a normal pace. May I encourage you to read it twice. We don't know much about Obadiah. Obadiah is, uh, we hear nothing about his family. We don't know the kings to which he ministered. Um, We don't even know if Obadiah is his name. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. It could have just been a title that they designated the man who wrote the book with. So we don't know. But the interesting thing about Obadiah is Obadiah is a prophet, but not to the people of Israel. 
He's a prophet to the people of Edom. Edom is a land south and to the east of the land of Judah. Now, why is God sending a prophet to a pagan nation? Well, you need to have a little bit of the backstory here. Edom, the people of Edom, were actually cousins to the people of Israel. So if we just go up the chain of genealogies, Abraham, the one called to be the father of this nation, had a son Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob. And the descendants of Esau are called Edomites, or the people of Edom. And the descendants of Jacob were called Israelites, people of Israel, or the people of Judah. Now, there had been conflict in this family from the beginning. In fact, all the way from the womb between Esau and Jacob, there was conflict. But there was conflict in life. And there was conflict down throughout. The, it's like the Hountfield and McCoys have gone generational. It would just continue down. When Israel was drawn out of Egypt in the Exodus, Edom said, you can't go through our land. But King Saul, King David, King Solomon, they all had conflict with each other. There was great animosity. And Edom, that's the content of this book, is God is bringing about a reconciliation of that conflict from Edom to the people of Israel. Now, you notice, look if, if you have your Bibles open, look in the first verse with me. You see what it says? It says, uh, the vision of Obadiah. Now, we don't know what this vision is in terms of, did he see it in the sky? Did he see it in his mind? Was it put across a rock? Was it words spoken him? The word vision just means communication. There's a divine communication through a human instrument. And what God is doing is he's raising up Obadiah and he's sending him to Edom with this message. Look at what he says. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. So here's what's happening. God is telling, God is giving a vision where God calls out, and he says, nations, rise up and bring judgment on Edom. God is sending judgment to the nation of Edom because they have persecuted God's people, because they have mistreated God's people. So, so most people, Scholars believe this was written about five after 586-87. This is when Babylon, a big, powerful nation to the east, after Assyria, came and was destroying Jerusalem. And Edom jumped in on it with them. And so God is saying, you will be punished for how you punished my people. That's what the whole message is about, but there's more. Let me just try to break it down for you, and then we'll get into it piece by piece. In the first 14 verses, there's only 21 but in the, first, in the first 14 verses, it's a word of judgment. God is giving a word of judgment to Edom. Edom is going to hear their own demise. Edom is going to hear clearly from God that your end has come. And then, then in 15 and 16, it's kind of a hinge verse. It, it works like the hinge of a door. It looks back at how judgment does fall on Edom, but it also looks forward to how the picture of the judgment of Edom is really going to be upon all the nations. Edom becomes a microcosm, just a picture of it. And then in 17 to 21, those passages, those verses that Melanie wrote, th that's hope for salvation through judgment. It's important. It comes through judgment, after judgment. So those are the three chunks we'll be looking at. Let, let's look at 1 to 14 first, this word of judgment, this word from God of judgment. Look with me in verse 2 what he says. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall utterly be despised. 
This is a divine word God is giving. I will make you small. This is God speaking in a very clear, sovereign way, as if he rules the nations. Now remember, this God of Obadiah is not like the God of, let's say, Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson. They believe that God created the world, set it in order, and then gave it a push. And it was just going to be spinning of its own power according to the natural laws established. That's not the God of Obadiah. The God of the deists, many people want to believe that God, yeah, God's there and he's created the world and boom, do the best you can do. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. He rules over the nations. He intervenes in the things of men. He guides the paths of nations. He has purposes for this world. He involves himself in the affairs of men and women. God is intimately acquainted with the goings-on of his people and those who are opposed to him. And that's why he says here, I will make you small. Now this presumes they thought themselves large. They thought themselves great. They were marked by pride and they were marked by arrogance. They were a wealthy nation. They had two trade routes going right through the nation. All the wealth of the nations went right through their nation. And boom, taxation, it's not new to our country. They made a bundle on taxing the goods that used their highways. But not just that, they were geographically proud. Why? Because their homes were in the cliffs. It was like a little Switzerland, if you will. High and lifted up, very easy to defend. I've walked through the land. It's called Petra now. But you see, and if you've ever seen the movie Temple of Doom with uh, um, Indiana Jones, and you see that, that big tower and the, the high walls and the homes in the walls, that's the land. It, it's almost impregnable. It, it's some of the paths you can't walk two people through. Easy to defend. They felt, in, they felt very proud and arrogant. And so God says to you, I'll bring you down. I'll make you small. And here's what he does. In 6 and through 9, let me just read a couple of the verses. He says, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. And your mighty men shall be destroyed, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off for slaughter. Here's what God does. If you read verses 5 through 9, you're going to see that he says, I'll bring your economy down. You rested in your wealth, I'll bring that down. You rested in your wisdom, there will be no more wise men, he says. And you think that you're undefeatable? I'll bring you down from those towers. All your mighty men, they'll be slaughtered. So God brings judgment to those things that they have put their hope in, that they put their trust in, because they were a proud people. Look back with me at 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. God says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. God is announcing judgment upon this nation for their arrogance. Now, at a minimum, you and I ought to take away from this a deep awareness of the danger of pride. I hope you do. I hope you see the danger of pride. That if you are resting in, if you're settling secure, if you're making kind of an ultimate security, your portfolio or the health that you have, or the way you live your life, or the, or the military that guards you, or the friendships that you have, or the relationships, or your children, if those 
are the places that really hold your ultimate heart, that you're trusting in them, you're resting in them, they give you joy, uh, that, the, that the threat of losing them would bring you to your knees, then you are resting in them. And he's saying none of those will last. They can't last. They're temporal. They're like us. Please do not rest on those things. But we tend to. We tend to trust in things. We tend to gloat when our enemies suffer. We tend to look down on others, showing our pride. It was alleged, I tried to investigate it, but it was alleged that Sylvia Caldwell was one of the passengers on the Titanic. And as she was boarding the Titanic at Southampton, England, for this maiden voyage, she looked at the deckhand and said, is this ship really unsinkable? And it's alleged, but at least the attitude of the ship at the time, he said, yes, ma'am, even God himself could not sink her. You, you rest on those things, and they will be brought down. They will not serve you. But not just at a personal level, national level. If you take great pride in this nation in terms of its military strength and how that will be for you a, a, an ultimate form of protection, just think historically. The Assyrians were the power that gave way to the Babylonians. The Babylonians gave way to the Persians. The Persians gave way to the Greeks. The Greeks gave way to the Romans. And onward we go. Spanish give way to the English. The English sun never set on their empire. It does now. What about us? If you rest in these things, they will surely let you down. They will surely fail you. Or even spiritually. God doing a great work in our church, doing a great work in your lives. If our trust begins to go into the, even the gifts of God, or maybe your theology is developing, you have a good understanding of God and you're growing in it, and you're seeing God, be, don't trust in those things. You know, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Do you know how God loves humility? That when you think of Jesus, and Jesus said, you know, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Humility before God is a pleasing thing. Humility is not something you attain. It's born out of you through the Spirit of God. It's the evidence of God's Spirit within you. Can you pray with me that we would be a church marked by a deep humility, a deep humility that is born out of understanding the glory of God. Not in self-deprecating, false humility of what a terrible person I am. That's not humility, that's false pride. It's inverted pride. It's getting a good glimpse of the holiness and the greatness of God, which this book purports to teach us, and then saying, who am I in light of that God? That's where humility comes. Listen, every one of us struggles with pride. In fact, there was a great quote I found, I was reading a book on John Adams by David McCullough. It's a great book, and he said this. This is in a letter. John Adams, that is, for you historian buffs, was our second president. Um, yeah, second. I almost said third. Um, but he wrote it to his wife, Abigail, and he said this. I believe there is no one principle which predominates in human nature so much in every stage of life, from the cradle to the grave, in males and females, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, high and low, as this passion for superiority. We want to be lifted up. We want to be above people. Folks, confess that sin. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to them. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand, 
and then he will lift you up in due time. So that's one of the warnings we see, that they were high and lifted up. These Edomites were proud. But notice, God's going to bring judgment. He doesn't do things in the corner. He explains in verses 10 through 14 why he brings judgment. He explains why. He gives the reason so that you know. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. He sums up the fruit of their pride as violence against their brother Jacob. Remember the relationship I explained. Now here's what happened. Babylon was coming and they were besieging and conquering Jerusalem. And so what were they doing? Well, he tells us, the Edomites, the neighboring nation, here's what they do when their brothers are being persecuted. He says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't boast in his day of distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't loot his wealth. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off this fugitive. Don't hand over his survivors in the day of distress. That's what they did. So these Edomites, and I want you to know, this story of Babylon destroying Jerusalem, this isn't a legend. It's not a movie. It's historical. It's factual. It's true. They came in. They burned houses. They raped women. They slaughtered men. They took people to slavery. They carted them off to Babylon. It's historical fact. That's what they did. And when that was happening, what was Edom doing? They were gloating. They were excited. They were happy. We didn't like them anyways. I'm glad they're getting their due. You know what? They made their bed, let them lie in it. Instead of being scared of God, and what does that judgment on God's own people mean for us? They should have been humbled. They should have been repentant. They should have been thinking, are we next? How ought we to learn from this clear judgment of God against his own people? And they gloated and they looked down, but they did more than observe and enjoy. They participated. They moved into their homes. Uh, They would catch people that snuck away from the Babylonians, and they would sell them back, either into slavery or turn them back into the Babylonians. I mean, they were absolutely ruthless with their own people. These Edomites took advantage of them. And God says, I'll bring judgment to you. And that's what we find. This is the word of judgment that God has given. The first 14 verses, he he says they're going to be judged, and he explains why they're judged. But now let's go to the second step. And that is this day of judgment, because he begins to explain it. You find this in verse 15 and 16. What he does is this. Obadiah says, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. If you, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. See, what he's speaking about now is Obadiah is saying to the Edomites, it's going to come back on you as you gave it to them. It's called lex talionis. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's pure justice. Now, in the pagan world, they didn't exercise pure justice. In the pagan world, what would happen would be, if you took one eye out, I'd take two eyes. God doesn't do it that way. It's a perfect justice. You humble them, you'll be humbled. You plunder them, you'll be plundered. You mock them, you'll be mocked. God brings in the same measure that was brought from them. And it happened. Within 150 years, the Babylonians were at the door of the Edomites. You don't hear of Edomites anymore because... They are no more. They're no more as a nation. Wiped off the face of the earth. God brought judgment. You cannot find an Edomite. 
because God has wiped them out. This is the judgment of God. And this judgment of Edom, you notice, and remember now, in biblical prophecy, sometimes the near and the future are put together into one. In the, judgment that the, day, in the day of judgment that came upon Edom, it also pointed forward to us and the day of judgment that will come upon all the nations. Notice there in 15, he says, the day of the Lord is near upon the nation. So the temporal judgment of Edom is showing us a picture of the eternal judgment that will come upon all the nations. Now, that, that really answers the question, why would God send this prophet to Edom? I mean, they were just like all the other nations. Why didn't they send him to Babylon or somebody else? But Edom becomes a picture of humanity. In fact, even the word linguistically, Edom and Adam are virtually the same word. It's just the vowels change. And the word Adam means humanity. It means all peoples. In other words, the judgment that will fall on Edom will fall on all humanity. Edom becomes a picture, becomes an example. It becomes a microcosm of the judgment that he's going to bring. God will bring judgment upon the nations. That's his point. Everybody who opposes God with pride and arrogance will be judged. This is the danger of pride. See, it's not a list of sins that you're concerned about with people. It's opposition to God. It might not be defiant opposition. It may be ambivalence. It may be indifference. It may be, I don't care about God. It may be any of those things. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about pride. He says, according to Christian thinkers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, they are more flea bites. They are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Do you realize this is how God sees the world? It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of opposing God. Again, it can be ambivalence. It can be indifference. God sees that as opposition to himself. Even if you're a Christian here, do you recognize at one point that you were hostile to God in mind? Do you realize that you were opposing God? out of pride, you may not have raised a high fist to him. Like, I don't believe it. It doesn't have to be unbelief. It doesn't have to be disbelief. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. This is the fear. This is what we read in Romans chapter 3 that none seek God, no, not one. Your throats are open graves. And then he goes on from chapter 3, 9, all the way to chapter, or chapter 3, 21. He just speaks about the nature of our opposition to God. So this is the warning. We hear about this word of judgment, and then we hear about the day of judgment that will come upon people, all nations. And so what do you draw from this? Well, if you're a Christian here, you want to draw that God is a God of all the nations, uh, that the God of the Bible is not a God of Israel. He's not a local deity. He's a God of all the nations. All the nations will come before him. So in our day, we have kind of refashioned God. We've kind of remolded him a little bit. We've changed God into kind of a, a picture of the one we want, right? So we look at God often as democratic. We look at God as one that we're going to sit around the table with and we're going to collectively talk 
about life and what's right and what's wrong and all the issues of the world. One day, I, people often say, yeah, when I see God, I'm going to say this, you know, as if we have a place at the table. You know, to lodge a complaint or a frustration. And we look at God in very theistic ways. You know, these up there, we believe him, and, and we think he should be happy that we believe him. But he's just this distant God. We think about him in therapeutic terms. And that God is for me to realize my full potential. And that he is there to help me in life. That he is there to make me happy. And that he is responsible. And you know what? If he doesn't do the things I ask him to do, then I get mad at him. And, and because he's not giving me these things. And we think about him not just therapeutically, but also moralistically. That, that he's going to be happy with me if I just try to be kind of a moral person. Or walk at least in consensual actions. That is not the God that will judge the nations. And if you hold those views, it is not in line. And this is why we preach, to get our views of God in line with God's views of God. I want to know what God thinks about God so that I can think about God like God thinks about God. So, so that, that's the lesson. Listen to what he warns the nations. He says in Psalm 2, Now, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word for the non-Christian. The non-Christian, the one who has not yet come to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, this is your hope. Your hope is to be reconciled to him, to no longer to confess your hostility, your indifference, your apathy, whatever you want to call it, but the posture that I'm doing my thing without him, that needs to be changed. Otherwise, you face this day of judgment, this day of wrath. The reality of it stands as it's been read to you. But there's another word for the Christian here, is that God, I think, is encouraging us hearing about this judgment. You as the Christian will not fall before him in judgment because Christ has been judged for you. But it's a reminder to you that it won't always be this way. The trials and the troubles and the sufferings that we have in this life will not always be so. God is going to bring about justice. He's going to bring about a reconciliation of those who have sinned against you, those who have hurt you, or, or just the bland troubles that you've had. Maybe they're not attributable to this person or that person, but you've just suffered. You've suffered in this world that is broken. God, God will make it right. And that's the hope that we have in this judgment. Don't fall prey just slipping into thinking that the wicked seem to always prosper. The ungodly always seem to do better than you. You know, they're healthier. Uh, they're, they're, they're richer. They're more comfortable. Their families are more in order. And all of a sudden, we look at the precious gifts of forgiveness and being chosen and, and known by God, adopted, and we see those gifts as having less value in real time. Why, it'd be great to be healthy for a while. It'd be great to have a good marriage. It'd be great to have healthy children. Don't fall prey to that. He says in Psalm 73, the psalmist speaks about the threat that comes to us. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps nearly stumbled. For I was envious of the arrogant, the proud. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as with a garment. But then you move to verse 17. But then I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Discern your end. It's a good end. And you'll see that in the judgment. So you see in the book of Obadiah, in verses 1 through 14, there's judgment upon the people of Edom. In 15 and 16, it's a hinge verse. Edom was judged, and so will all the nations be. And if Edom was judged, then you know the nations will be. But then look with me at 17 to 21, because this is where the hope comes in. And I think you've seen, thankfully, that every prophet turns back to God and offers hope. Notice what he says here. He says in 17, but in Mount Zion, there are those who escape. Now, but he's contrasting the nations being judged with those who are not judged, but they're safely in Zion. Now, Zion is this, it's not a physical place. It transcends that. It's speaking about the presence of God. And, and we're gonna, there's going to be those who escape in Mount Zion. They're there with God, safe and secure and they're now holy. Now, the reason that I had Melanie read through all those places, because you notice, it says, let me read it over to you. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim. They shall possess the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in, in Sepharath shall possess the city. What do you keep hearing there? What in the world does that even mean? It means, you kept hearing what? Possess land, possess land, possess land. I think you hear it six, seven times. What's he saying here? He's using the regaining of the land as God saying, I'll restore to you everything. The land is a picture of, of being with God under his rule in his presence forever. He's showing us that there is coming a day when all things will be restored, all that we've lost, all the suffering that we had will be returned to you in absolute, full, and perfect measure. It's all coming. And not just is this new Jerusalem, that's what it's called, a, a new Jerusalem, a new Zion, but there's a new people in it. Uh, the people are not just the sons of Jacob. You heard this last week from Amos chapter 9. We read it. It says, in that day, the same day, remember the day of the Lord is used repeatedly throughout all 12 minor prophets. He says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess, listen to this, the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Do you see God's going to gather all the nations, even a remnant from Edom. Even the Edomites will be represented who have escaped in Mount Zion. Even they will be represented. Do you see what God's doing in the day of the Lord? He's going to gather all the nations. That's why in Revelation 5, every tribe, tongue, and nation, they'll all worship him. In Revelation 21, you see New Jerusalem come down out of heaven. This new Zion that God's people will be in God's place, in God's presence. That's the hope we have. Now, when was this fulfilled? Well, well, some of it was fulfilled. Remember now, in biblical prophecy, it's like the mountain range. It all looks like the mountains are piled on top of each other, but there is spaces between them. So the prophets of the Old Testament would often speak about the future as having both a near component and a far component in the same verse. And so when you see this about regathering the land, this did happen. A few generations later, the people were regathered, right? 
Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the wall. Think about that for a minute. If you're a destroyed nation, and then a pagan king sends you back to rebuild your kingdom, they had to say, is it happening? Well, of course it was beginning to happen, but not in fullness. But then there's another layer of fulfillment. What about when Christ came? Christ came as the son of David. He came, he came in the line of Judah. He came announcing a kingdom. Remember, look at the end of 21. It says, and the kingdom is the Lord's. He comes and announces a kingdom of God. But what else does he announce? He announces the judgment of God. He's preaching like his father. He's preaching like God preached to the Edomites. He says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And so you have Jesus not just coming and announcing judgment, but you have Christ suffering under judgment. He goes through the judgment of God. God upholds his holiness by punishing the Son. That's why you don't have to fear. You have been delivered from judgment because he has been judged for you. So we see the day of the Lord begin at the crucifixion of Christ. A layer of it, but not full. The fullness of this picture will be on that final day. The day that we see that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And what it means is everybody in the kingdom, all of our theology, all of our lives will be perfectly aligned with God. So how do we wait? How do we wait right now? You've heard this Old Testament prophet. You've, looked at the, you've heard the word of judgment, the day of judgment, now the hope of salvation through judgment. How do we wait? Well, the first thing is we wait repentantly. We are people who repent. Even if you're a Christian here, you do repent. Repentance is us taking stock of our lives, recognizing the holiness of God, and we repent. We, we seek his forgiveness. We confess to him and to those that we sinned against. We practice this. If you're married, you ought to be expressing some degree of repentance, one to the other, probably every day, uh, probably at least a few times a week. You know, I'm sorry that I spoke that way to you. I, I, would you please forgive me? It's not just a repentance to God. That's where it begins. Against you have only... Have I sinned? But it's a repentance to one another. I thought of myself above you. If you're in a good friendship, you have a roommate, you have conflict, you're always seeking to keep the decks clear. You want to walk in repentance. If you're not a Christian here, the hope is this. In Amos 5.6, he says, Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. In Joel 2, we read a few weeks back, Yet even now, return to me with your heart. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents from disaster. This is how we wait. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your sins. Look to Christ who bears judgment. And in faith, trust that he is sufficient to bring you to God, forgiven of your sins. But not, we don't just repent. We also believe. We also walk by faith. You know, the, the, the key theme throughout these prophets is that they were promoting in a people to wait. They were waiting for the Messiah to come, but not just come the first time, come a second time. We wait. We wait in faith in the midst of suffering. All of us are suffering. You are graciously walking uh, with Carol and I through this time. But, but each one of you, I know you have different issues. Some of you, it may be a marriage. Some of you, it may be um, finances. You have a friend. I mean, we, the, in this life, we'll have trouble, Jesus said. 
We learn from Obadiah by waiting and watching. We wait in faith, believing that God is good to us and will ultimately deliver us, even through these temporal struggles. We wait and we watch. We are intimately watching for him to deliver. Maybe not out of every struggle, but he will deliver to us grace and mercy and sustain to us. And we wait for the day when he will make all those things right. Yeah, I can't get away from that quote from C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. He says this, I've repeated it to you a hundred times, you should be able to quote it to me by now, but he says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. But they don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That's what we wait and we watch for. We wait and watch for that. And each one of you, if you're not in, you don't, if you haven't gotten the call, you know that we all are open to it. And life changes drastically. But we have hope of the salvation through judgment. So we say, Lord, come and come quickly. Let me pray for us and then let this time, though, be a time of just your own pride, your own repentance? Are you waiting and watching? Thankful over Christ who has borne our sin and shame. So the judgment for us is not a day of fear, but it will be a day of reconciliation. It will be a great day where agonies will be transformed before our very eyes.